Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport, for WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. In today's feature report, Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands discusses federal aid for pollution repair and details on federal low-cost loan programs to help communities deal with pollution. But first, today's environmental stories. According to the Tribune, Seymour's newspaper, community forums are set to learn about the newly published Lake Monroe Watershed Management Plan and how people can help protect and enhance water quality in the lake and its tributaries. Forums are planned for 6.45 to 8.30 p.m. on May 24th at St. Thomas Lutheran Church located at 3800 East 3rd Street in Bloomington from 6.45 to 8.30 p.m. June 9th at the Brown County Public Library, 205 Locust Lane, and 6.45 to 8.30 p.m. June 15th, with a virtually Zoom link to be set in advance. All three forums are sponsored by Friends of Lake Monroe and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington, Monroe County, and Brown County. The plan developed by Friends of Lake Monroe is the product of a two-year project gathering and analyzing data about the lake and its watershed. The report summarizes the available data, identifies the top threats to water quality, and outlines an action plan to reduce non-point source pollution. The plan will serve as a guiding document to implement projects over the next 20 years to achieve water quality goals for the lake. Public input is now needed to help prioritize project implementation and mobilize communities to take action. The Coalition Against the Mid-States Corridor, a proposed new terrain highway in southern Indiana, has joined the Sierra Club, Indiana Forest Alliance, and Hoosier Environmental Council to issue a joint statement condemning construction of the highway. They contend that it would destroy the forest, wetlands, wildlife habitats, water quality, air quality, and communities in its path while greatly increasing pollution. The group statement says that the cost of building a new terrain highway don't justify the devastation it would cause to the environment. The highway, they say, would decrease air, water, and soil quality. It would displace Hoosiers for no good reason. The time saved for drivers would be negligible as per the stated goals of the project. Last, there is far greater need to repair existing highways and explore transportation alternatives. The groups argue that the new highway would be a total waste because it would run parallel to US 231 and that it would be greatly preferable to improve US 231 from I-64 to I-69 than to build a new terrain highway. Said Indiana Forest Alliance Executive Director Jeff Stant, quote, 
This project represents a ridiculous extravagance and fiscal waste on the part of the political leaders supporting the project. There is zero need to build a new terrain road right beside 231 when the state has already committed $75 million to upgrade 231, end quote. Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Director at the Hoosier Environmental Council, is urging Hoosiers, no matter where they live in the state, to write to Governor Holcomb opposing the project and demanding that he cancel it. With its climate agenda stalled in Congress, President Joe Biden has managed to win billions in federal spending for one pillar of his platform that is gaining increased attention globally, carbon capture. In a major win for oil, coal, utilities, and other industries, the federal government is poised to make its largest investment ever, more than $12 billion from last year's infrastructure bill, in technologies that capture carbon dioxide from smokestack emissions or straight from the air. ExxonMobil, Southern Company, and other oil fossil fuel giants have promoted carbon capture and storage as a tool for cutting emissions for more than a decade with little to show for it. Still, carbon capture is gaining traction with politicians in both parties, policy experts, scientists, and even some more environmentalists who say that the threat of climate change is so dire that it requires every possible solution. But many progressive climate groups like Greenpeace and 350.org say oil companies are promoting the technologies as a distraction to avoid phasing out their products. At best, they argue, carbon capture and removal will play a marginal role in limiting emissions. At worst, they warn, subsidies for the technologies will prolong demand for fossil fuels, squandering money that would be better spent on replacing coal, oil, and gas altogether. While the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said in 2018 that carbon capture and removal technologies may be critical to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, it has also said that carbon removal in particular remains unproven and that relying on it posed a major risk to meeting climate targets. Another element involves storage of the captured carbon dioxide. An option being considered in Indiana is to bury it deep underground. That outcome will resemble the outcome for fracking. Fracking causes earthquakes. It isn't clear Indiana voters would tolerate occasional shaking events. The one cheap, proven way of removing carbon dioxide is to plant trees. Environmentalists are demanding that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, FERC, issue a stop work order on the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP for short. For the last eight years, communities in West Virginia and Virginia have been fighting this 300-mile-long fracked gas pipeline proposed by Equitrans. The struggle to stop the pipeline is notable for its broad diversity of tactics, including numerous lawsuits, activists locking themselves to machinery, and long-standing tree sits preventing construction of the pipeline. This resistance has meant that MVP is $3.5 billion over budget and four years behind schedule. This past January, the Federal Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals discarded critical permits granted by the U.S. Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management that would have allowed Equitrans to build a 3.5-mile section of the pipeline through the Jefferson National Forest. On February 3rd, 
the Fourth Circuit Court dealt another blow to MCP when it reversed the decision of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that MVP posed no threat to the endangered Roanoke log perch and candy darter. The court statement concludes, quote, We recognize that this decision will further delay the completion of an already mostly finished pipeline, but the Endangered Species Act's directive to federal agencies could not be clear, halt and diverse the trend towards species extinction, whatever the cost, end quote. MVP has lost U.S. Army Corps of Engineer permits to cross nearly a thousand streams, but this past December, the Virginia State Water Control Board gave state-level permission to cross them. On February 11th, the Army Corps of Engineers blocked this win by the company, refusing to grant federal water crossing permits until the impact on the endangered species is newly assessed. In the fall of 2019, the last time the project lost so many permits, FERC issued a stop work order. The project certification expires on October 13th. Opponents are also asking FERC to deny the project outright when its certification expires because of a lack of need and adverse climate impacts. The Environmental Protection Agency released a draft white paper recently that gives the public a glimpse into the possible requirements the agency might include in a highly anticipated new rule that seeks to rein in climate warming emissions from natural gas power plants, the nation's leading source of electricity. The agency is seeking public comment on the paper which explores a host of different technologies and other options that states, tribes, and power companies could be required to adopt under a new rule to make their gas-fired power plants more efficient and cleaner, something the agency said is critical for battling climate change, as projections of natural gas use point to continued growth for the foreseeable future. Those options include building hybrid plants that run on both gas and renewable energy, implementing carbon capture technology to help reduce overall emissions as well as phasing in the use of hydrogen gas, which burns without emitting carbon dioxide. Many of those technologies, however, have been criticized by climate activists who say they aren't as effective as proponents claim and distract from the more important task of transitioning away from fossil fuel use altogether. The paper's release was celebrated by environmentalists, many of whom have felt increasingly frustrated with the Biden administration, which they say has failed to live up to its promise of tackling the worsening climate crisis. Soon after taking office, President Biden pledged to slash the nascent greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030, an ambitious goal that would require significant reductions across nearly every sector of the economy. But Biden's first year as president was marred by his inability to pass national climate policy, among other progressive priorities, and activists have criticized the administration, saying it has compromised on too much of its environmental agenda at a time when climate scientists say the consequences of global warming are on the verge of quickly spiraling out of control. Human beings' addiction to putting up fences has gotten out of hand and wildlife is suffering as a result. From East Africa to Mongolia, fences are going up quickly to contain livestock and prevent people from crossing borders. More and more studies are showing that those fences have a negative impact on wild animals, from hindering migrations to increasing the genetic isolation of threatened species. Quote, 
The main threat of the border wall is not the localized area of habitat loss and habitat degradation. It's the landscape level impacts of curtailing or completely precluding wildlife movement and eliminating landscape connectivity at large scales, end quote, said Aaron Flesch, a wildlife biologist at the University of Arizona who studied the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Millions of miles of fences disrupt the natural world globally. The length of the fences in the American West alone is estimated to be over 620,000 miles, nearly three times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Besides blocking animal migration routes and furthering disease transmission by concentrating animals, fences change predators' hunting practices and hinder access to important areas of water and forage. These are some of the indirect threats fences pose. The direct threats can be dramatic. For example, the greater sage-grouse, a species in severe decline in the U.S. West, flies low and often dies when they collide with strands of barbed wire. Antelope in North America and guanaco in South America, as other examples, become tangled up in fences and die of starvation or experience injuries. On the border of China, and Mongolia, a Mongolian gazelle was tracked for 20 days along a fence and covered 30 miles trying to find a place to cross. The Biden administration has set a goal of creating a carbon-free electricity sector in the U.S. by 2035, and expanding solar energy will play an important role in making that possible. American cities have played a key role in the clean energy revolution and stand to reap tremendous benefits from solar energy. As population centers, they are a major source of electricity demand, and with millions of rooftops suitable for solar panels, they have the potential to be major sources of clean energy production as well. Some cities are shining brighter than others, however. A total of nine cities have more solar panels installed than the entire country did a decade ago. Those cities are Los Angeles, San Diego, Las Vegas, Honolulu, San Antonio, New York, Phoenix, San Jose, and Albuquerque. Indianapolis ranks number 12 in a listing of major cities. And now our feature Indiana environmental reporter Enrique Sands will discuss federal aid for pollution repair and details federal low-cost loan programs to help communities deal with pollution. A federally funded program run by individual states helps communities afford to address their clean water and drinking water problems with low interest loans or grants. But the program is not perfect. Federal funding mechanisms for improving Indiana's water infrastructure work, but need more flexibility to help eliminate lead service lines, PFAS, and other issues. That's according to testimony from one of the state's top finance officials. Jim McGough, Indiana Finance Authority Chief Operating Officer and Director of Environmental Programs, testified March 29th before the U.S. House Subcommittee on Environment and Climate Change of the Committee on Energy and Commerce. McGough was one of four witnesses called to testify on how the federal government could best facilitate the distribution and use of about $43 billion in water infrastructure funding provided by the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The money will be distributed through the Clean Water and Drinking Water State Revolving Funds, a federal program managed by states that provides low-interest loans and grants to communities needing to improve their wastewater and drinking water infrastructure. The Clean Water and Drinking Water programs will each receive $11.7 billion to disperse among the states, 
The funding includes $15 billion for lead service line removal and $5 billion to address PFAS and other emerging contaminants. McGough said the program is effective, but requires some changes to effectively tackle water infrastructure challenges. I can confidently say the SRF programs are experts in providing low-cost financial assistance for every community's drinking water need. Congress's right to choose the SRF programs when looking for the appropriate vehicle to address emerging contaminants and lead service line removal. However, to be able to achieve the intent of the law, this targeted funding requires more flexible and innovative approach than the base program that we currently monitor. McGough said the program's rules sometimes conflict with its intent, preventing the IFA from funding some efforts to address public health threats despite their clear benefit. He said the Indiana Finance Authority was not permitted to use emerging contaminant funding to remove PFAS firefighting foam from fire stations in Indiana, an act that would prevent PFAS chemicals from making their way into waterways. That's because SRF rules require the financial assistance to go directly to a drinking water utility. Over 9,000 PFAS chemicals exist, but only a few have been thoroughly studied. Those PFAS chemicals have been linked to serious health conditions like increased risk of kidney and testicular cancer, increased cholesterol levels, increased risk of high blood pressure, and others. Firefighting foam made with PFAS, known as aqueous film-forming foam, has been used for decades to fight fires involving petroleum and other flammable liquids. The foam was found to leach PFAS chemicals into soil and waterways, potentially exposing people close to and downstream from the site the foam was used. The chemicals do not degrade in the environment and remain in the human body for at least five years after it enters. Indiana lawmakers banned the use of PFAS firefighting foam for training in 2020. IDEM later tested some community water systems throughout the state for several PFAS chemicals, finding evidence of them in at least four systems. It's unclear whether other PFAS chemicals exist in Indiana waterways or on land that threatens the waters. McGough said that unless the federal government is flexible in how PFAS funds are used, states may never get the chance to find out. An SRF program has used its clean water SRF funds to fund energy efficiency projects with EPA approval under the theory that energy efficient addition to homes would reduce energy use, which would reduce energy production, which would reduce stack emissions, which would reduce particulate matter leaving the stack and falling into a receiving stream. Arguably, there is a greater threat of a container of firefighting foam failing and leaking in the basement of a firehouse, or the more likely scenario of it being used and then flowing into a receiving stream or well, and that may be the, only, the town's only source of drinking water. The state runs its own voluntary PFAS firefighting foam collection initiative through the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and the Indiana Department of Homeland Security. The initiative collects PFAS foam from fire departments willing to rid themselves of their stockpiles at no cost to those departments. McGough, who also serves as president of the Council of Infrastructure Financing Authorities, said increased flexibility would also help address lead service lines in the state. Lead contamination has long been a threat to the health of Americans. Lead gasoline, paint, and plumbing were legal to sell and use until the late 1970s. But Indiana residents and other Rust Belt residents experience a greater threat from lead service lines than other areas. A 2016 survey by the American Water Works Association estimated about 6.1 million lead service lines in all 50 states combined. 
The region, including Indiana and neighboring states, was estimated to have the largest number of lead service lines in the nation. But no one really knows how many lead service lines actually exist in Indiana or elsewhere. The IFA funds a statewide voluntary lead testing program in public schools, which found that in the 2017-2018 school year, 62% of schools tested had at least one fixture detected with lead levels over 15 parts per billion. Hundreds of schools did not participate in the program. In 2020, Indiana lawmakers passed a law requiring schools to test their buildings for lead contamination by January 1, 2023. Outside of schools, the extent of contamination continues to be unclear. According to Gabriel Filippelli, director of the Center for Urban Health at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, communities only started mapping service line construction in the 1970s and 1980s. This is what he told the Indiana Environmental Reporter in November, soon after the infrastructure funding was signed into law. Actually, I have absolutely no idea where, you know, where most of these service lines might be. So it's it's like a, a detective game where you hope to get it all right, but you're likely going to miss some. McGough said current state revolving fund rules prevent states from investing allocated funds into serious investigations of where lead service lines exist. Federal law currently requires that states provide the U.S. EPA, the agency that runs the state revolving funds, a list of projects they intend to fund before they can begin spending a single dollar of allocated funding. Therein lies the problem. Utilities in many states have not begun the process of developing an inventory of lead service lines. It would be logical to think we would be able to use these funds to generate a statewide inventory and then begin the process of removing the lead lines. However, we are limited to only using a fraction of the funds for this purpose. McGough told the subcommittee that funds called set-asides, which are generally reserved for administrative expenses and state-specific initiatives, may be eligible, but would not be sufficient to complete vital lead service line inventories. Logic suggests, and we believe your intent would be that the lead service line funding be eligible for use in all things associated with the removal, or at the very least, the first and second year of funding be eligible for inventories, believing that once inventoried, uh, the later year's funding could be uh, targeted for their removal. We do not believe wholesale changes to the legislation are necessary. It's good legislation, but minor revisions are needed to ensure we can achieve its goals. At least 49% of the SRF funding for clean water and drinking water must go out to disadvantaged communities, a term each state has the power to define according to their own needs. In Indiana, we have both urban and very rural uh, communities. And so our disadvantaged um, community definition recognizes uh, very low median household income, high user rates. McGough said the state targets grants and forgivable loans to disadvantaged communities. The state's aging infrastructure and climate change altered rainfall patterns have prompted more communities to apply for grants and other help from the IFA. A state audit found that many service lines in Indiana are nearing or have already reached the end of their service life and need to be replaced at the cost of $2.3 billion and $815 million annually for maintenance. Climate change is adding pressure to already stressed existing water systems by causing precipitation to fall in shorter, heavier events, increasing the likelihood of combined sewer overflows, a threat to public health. More than 500 communities applied for funding from the IFA State Water Infrastructure Fund, a program that uses allocated state funding and coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds to finance projects to improve the state's water resources 
and provide substantial rate relief to Indiana utility customers the state said are most in need of help. So far, the state has issued 22 SWIFT grants during the first of four rounds of funding. The IFA said it will open up applications for the next round of funding this summer. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Join the Naturalist at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Saturday, May 14th from 1 to 3 p.m. to learn about wacky water critters. Explore the world of macroinvertebrates. This hands-on activity will use dipping nets, magnifying glasses, and dichotomous keys to collect, examine, and study aquatic insects. Go to the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area website to register. Meet with a naturalist at Brown County State Park on Saturday, May 14th from 9 to 10.30 p.m. for a full moon hike. Meet at the Lake Straw parking lot and learn why the May moon is named the Flower Moon. Plus, learn where the term Blood Moon comes from. On Saturday, May 14th and Sunday, May 15th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon on both days, learn basic boater safety and paddling tips from a canoe instructor before a find-it scavenger hunt at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Collect points for a chance to win a prize. Register at bloomington.in.gov forward slash parks. Enjoy a night paddle at Griffey Lake Preserve on Monday, May 16th from 8.30 to 10 p.m. Experience peace and serenity on Griffey Lake during the full moon. Watercraft, paddles, and jackets are provided, but you should bring a flashlight. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. The next Nature Sounds performance on Friday, May 20th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. will have the nature topic, Buzzin' Bees. Sam Bartlett will be on banjo while you learn all about bees. The event will take place at the RCA Community Park in the large shelter. Bring your own seating. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. Juliana Daly assembled the script and Linda Green, Don Guerra, and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar Patrick Callanan produced, audio edited, and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly.
And I'm Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.